Today we're reading from verses 3 to 4. Verses 3 to 4. This is what the Word of God says. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. Let's pray together one more time. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you, Lord. We, we bless your holy name today. Thank you that these glorious realities that we have sung about and we've communed uh, over the Lord's table and the things that we have heard already today, Lord, we pray and we thank you for these glorious realities that these are all yes and amen in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Thank you for his wonderful, beautiful life. Thank you for his person. We thank you for his abiding presence with us through the power of your spirit. We thank you that he uh, is pleased to dwell not only among us, but literally in us to remain and to abide with us to the end of the age. We thank you for this glorious communion that we have with him. We pray, O God, that you would As the text before us says, that you would examine our hearts, Lord, search and try us and see if there be any wicked way within us. And God, we pray that you would draw us closer to you today, that your word would go out in power and that it would not return to you void, that it would accomplish its purpose today in our hearts, that it would have that prophetic power in our hearts, Lord, to to convict and instruct and to illuminate us, to, to search and to probe us, O God, so that we can have a more intimate and sweeter communion with You. Bless our time, God. We ask for Your help. We are desperate, Lord, for You to give us Your unction and Your aid to help us, Lord, both speaker and, and, and hear alike, Lord. We ask that You would do a mighty work in our church as Your Word spreads rapidly among us, Lord. May You be glorified in all these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, as we think about continually now the pastoral ministry, that's what we've been looking at as we've been talking about different contours of what biblical pastoral ministry looks like. And I've argued that chapter 2 of Second Thessalonians is really sort of the la creme, la creme of pastoral theology in the Bible. Of course, you have the pastoral epistles, 1st, 2nd uh, Timothy and Titus, but this is one of those hallmark moments in the Apostle Paul's uh, writings where he talks about his apostleship. And in the midst of this, he has given us very, very valuable, indispensable principles for pastoral leadership. And uh, this, is no, this section here is no exception Uh, But what I want to do today is connect all of this to the ministry of preaching. Uh, And that's because if you look closely at at the text here, the speaking ministry, the word ministry of pastoral ministry is really what's in focus here. He talks about being bold to speak in verse 2. He talks about exhorting them. So that's exhortation, of course, is with speech, verse 3. And also in verse 3, he talks about preaching without deceit. And then he also speaks about speaking in such a way that is pleasing to God and not being a man-pleaser in the way that he preached. And also in verse 5, he'll go on to talk about that he did not engage in flattery. 
with this. So everything has to do with speaking, communicating, uh, preaching uh, the Word of God. That's really the focus here. And so he's going to give us two things that I want to focus on, and that is, number one, preaching with virtue. Because here he gives us preaching with purity, integrity, and with fear. And also, in addition to preaching with virtue, I want to talk about preaching with authenticity. That's my outline anyway. Number one, preaching with virtue. Look at verse 3 again. He says, our exhortation, which that really refers back to the fact that he brought the gospel to them. And so that refers to his preaching ministry, his word ministry among them. And remember, we also made a case that that's not just the evangelistic thrust of the word of God. That's also, if you would, the daily diet of expositing the word of God among them, teaching them the word of God continually, not just evangelism, but just uh, even more than that, just the regular exposition of the word of God. But both of those things were done here with virtue. In verses 2, excuse me, verse 1 and verse 2, we looked at the adverse circumstances of the ministry. And now, if you would, we're going to be looking at the character of the ministry or even of the minister, the character of the minister. Paul often asserted in his writings the fact that his preaching ministry was born out of the motive of sincerity, let me give you a couple texts to go with that. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, the Apostle Paul, as he often did, he asserts this, again, this sort of this godly sincerity that he speaks about as a hallmark of his ministry. And he says, our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in carnal wisdom, but in the grace of God, he says, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you. So it's almost as if uh, it's one thing to be godly in the world, but there's a special reverence that is um, sort of evident in Paul's life when he was among the church, when he was ministering among the people, there was a heightened level of reverence and fear and holiness that he approached the ministry with. Also, if you just jump down to 2 Corinthians 2.17, he talks about it again, specifically about the way and in the manner and with the motive with which he handled the Word of God. He says, for we are not like many peddling the Word of God. Now, that word peddling implies some sort of motive for financial gain. Paul condemns that in the pastoral epistles of 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, not for sordid gain, right? Not for money. Not, you know, minister cannot be a lover of money. That cannot be what motivates him. And therefore, he does not peddle the Word of God. He says, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ, which means something like with Christ's authority, in the sight of God. And so that was his accountability. That was the fear and the reverence that he came uh, with. And here, in this sincerity that he has really is understood with, in three distinct ways. Theology, motives, and methods. Number one, theology. Of course, because what does he say here back in 1 Thessalonians 2.3? He says, our exhortation does not come from error. And so the Greek word there, plane, just 
It means to go astray. He did not deviate from orthodoxy. There wasn't a drop of liberalism in the blood of the Apostle Paul. There wasn't a shred of liberalism in his thinking, in his theology. He did not allow any unorthodox ways of thinking to influence him, the preaching of the Word, the preaching of the ministry. And of course, for us in our postmodern world, this is precious truth here, brothers and sisters, because... It is getting harder and harder, it seems, to sustain a high level of orthodox fidelity to the Word of God when so many people in our postmodern world are caving in to the culture, caving in to pragmatism, caving in to the, the, the seemingly the peer pressure of ministry of a, for a pastor to have a big church, for a pastor to have a, you know, what appears to be a thriving church consisting mainly of what is externally apparent. But, you know, as the Lord, you know, says in, in uh, 1 Samuel, God looks at the heart. He doesn't look at the outside. He doesn't care. He's not impressed with the size of the building. He doesn't, he's not impressed with the extent of the influence that you may have in evangelicalism. God knows the heart. And we'll get to that. We'll return to that. You can tell I'm zealous to get to that point. But, but the first thing, therefore, is that true biblical preaching is rooted in sound theology. This point right here obviously is kind of a softball for a preacher. And if you don't knock it out of the park, you're in trouble. I mean, this is is as easy as it gets. It's because biblical preaching is rooted in sound theology. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, a verse that many of you have memorized. He says, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman. Notice there the identity of the preacher. That you are, first and foremost, a workman. In other words, you are bound to work. Uh, And if you don't put in the blood, sweat, and tears that it takes to be a good workman of Christ, you're not going to produce sound theology. It's hard. Somebody asked me, why are so many people preaching today in such a, um, oh, what's the word you want to use? Not too harshly, but you know what I mean. A lot of preaching today is more conversational level preaching. The pastor comes out and the first thing he does is tell you a story right off the bat. Because, you know, in all the preaching manuals, they tell you, if you tell a story at the very beginning, then you hook your audience. Well, you know, to us here, that's all out the window, you know. We care about chapter and verse, please. <laughs> but, you know, uh, the first thing, though, is that it takes hard work. And so people ask me, well, how many, why is it that so many people are doing this sort of conversational style preaching? It's be- and I tell them, because exegesis is hard. That's why. Because learning Greek is hard. Exegeting the Greek text is hard. Learning Hebrew is hard. Those things are hard. Working with critical commentaries is not easy. And so it's so much easier just to abandon the process and to adopt something that is just more conducive to, you know, a conversation level sermon. And, uh, but we don't do that because based on scriptures like this, matter of fact, he says he has to present yourself approved to God as a workman who doesn't need to be ashamed. Why? This is like an explanatory clause. Accurately handling the word of truth. That's when you really start to understand if the pastor is worth his salt. Right, Because it's not so much how eloquent is he, how magnetic is his personality, uh, you know, how likable is he. Right? Is he a good guy? No. What about this? Can he exegete the text? Right? That's a bigger question because we, if we want our, our preaching to be pure, 
our preaching has to be rooted in sound theology so that we avoid what Paul calls here error. Error. There's so much of this, and it's so prevalent today in the church. So much theological error. You know that. You hear that. You hear it in the contemporary music that you hear all over the place. Just the error is just it's prevalent everywhere. You know, I've often said that you know, contemporary uh, uh, music artists, they should have a doctrinal statement on their music. So we know, where are you coming from? What do you believe? Where do you go to church? You ever ask that? Think of a real popular, uh, uh, famous worship leader in your mind. Where does he go to church? Where does she go to church? What, what theology do they believe in? It's just amazing that so much theology is neglected today. It's minimized. Um, and as a matter of fact, this, this idea here of error, plané, is really that which belongs to the false teachers. Therefore, the pastor, the minister, has to be ready not only to rightly divide the word of truth, the word of God, but he also has to defend it. So we're told in Jude 3 to defend the, 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 the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We have to protect the flock. We have to expose heresy. And the Apostle Paul told young Timothy to be ready to do this. Matter of fact, turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. I want to show you a couple texts in Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning of verse 23. It's not just about uh, you know, giving a positive message. It's not, just a, it's not just about building up. Sometimes you're called to tear down, uh, namely heresy and people who contradict the Word of God. That's part of the job as well. Um, 2 Timothy 2.23, he says, Refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome. It's not that you're just going and getting in all kinds of you know, debates with people. I mean, don't, let, don't get me started on social media, right? Forget all of that. I tell you what, nowadays, if I'm listening to a ministry or a podcast or something like that, and it begins with what's going on and what kind of fights are going on on Facebook or on Twitter... I'm out. I, I, I don't have time for that, right? So it's not that you jump into every little controversy that you can find. That's not the dynamic. But he does, says, he does say here, you have to be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, and watch this here, with gentleness, correcting those that are in opposition, those who oppose the gospel. You have to be in gentleness, correct. So you cannot be so humble and so gentle that you fail to correct. And in the duty of correcting people, you cannot be so zealous to correct that you fail to be gentle. It's a fine, delicate balance. And then jump down to Second uh, Timothy. I'll go back up to chapter 1 of Timothy here. He says, in beginning in verse 13, he says, Retain the, sound, or the standard of sound words which you heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. He says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And I can spend all day on that one point of sound theology rooted in that word error and avoiding theological errors. There's nothing more important. That's why if you come to a Sunday class, a Sunday school class in our church, we are very much about theology. You know, we're very much about uh, explaining uh, the text, explaining theology, explaining doctrine, teaching, teaching, teaching. That's what's going to hold us together. 
Second thing is that preaching arises out of holy motives. Because look at what he says here. He says our exhortation doesn't come from error. That's the theological part of it, theological component. And then he says, or impurity. Now, here's what's interesting is I think that in this context, the word here, impurity, uh, that just speaks of a cleansing, right? I think that it's connected to the word ministry uh, uh, that goes forth. In other words, that you know, the message that he spoke was free from impure things like false motives, or as he's going to explain here, by way of deceit, which is really interesting because, now follow me here, because what I'm arguing is that when he says by way of deceit, it's kind of an instrumental use of that preposition, which means that the impurity would be through deception. And so, you know, we have to account for that, but we also have to notice that when the Apostle Paul uses the word impurity, it also has a moral component, especially a sexual purity. Uh, turn to Second Peter chapter 2, because there's a reason why he's mingling this with the ministry of the Word, because part of false teachers is actually uh, this, this note of impurity. As a matter of fact, Peter makes it crystal clear, and I think sometimes we overlook this point, right? That it's not just that many false teachers are motivated by deception for deception's sake, but they have a goal, they have an end, and much of that, and often that, is impurity or sensuality, as Peter says. Look at what he says, Second Peter chapter 2, verse 2. He says, many, talking about the false teachers, many will follow their sensuality. Isn't that amazing? As he's denouncing false teachers, he focuses in on sexual immorality. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, I've been in membership meetings where folks are joining the church and they're explaining to me that that the church they came from, the pastor was sleeping with women in the congregation. And I'm just like, is that a real story? And yes, and it's prevalent. And you know, because of just the, the influence of this fraudulent ministries everywhere, right? People are in it for Well, if they're not in it for financial gain, if they're not in it for power and influence, then they're in it for sensuality, and that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is rejecting here. His whole ministry was rooted in a pure life, and that pure life gave rise to a pure ministry. Matter of fact, just to go on here in Peter's description, jump down to verse 12, because Peter gives an in-depth description of false teachers and what motivates them, and he does not hold back like so many people do today. He says that those who do this, they, they are like unreasoning animals. Not my words, these are his words. Born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reveling where they have no knowledge, and they will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. So there you go, this note of reveling, sensuality, impurity. This is exactly what Paul is denouncing in his ministry. So he was, he did not have these impure motives and neither can we if we want to have a ministry like the Apostle Paul. In Galatians, Paul says that false teachers, they want to make much out of you for no purpose. They want to shut you out so that you will make much of them. 
That's Galatians chapter 4, verse 17. In other words, the whole purpose of their getting into the, into the ministry is so that the people would remain theologically deceived, ignorant, gullible, easily manipulated for what purpose? So that they can be made much of themselves. Uh, that's, that's a crucial distinction for any church that anyone would be looking at is, is the, are the pastors, are they pastors, are they positively, are they intentionally trying to educate their people theologically? Or are they trying to keep their people ignorant of the truth? That's a dead giveaway that you need to get away from a ministry like that. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says that we need to be about the, the business of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. Also, this preaching consisted of transparent methods as well because the method is in this participle by or excuse me this prepositional phrase by way of deceit our exhortation does not come from error or from impurity or by way of deceit the apostle paul dwelled in truth his motives were pure and his living backed it up paul says among other things that his exhortation was not by way of deceit meaning that uh, for him you know, he, he's going to repeat this negation over and over of things that it, ministry is not. And a matter of fact, that's the way we should also judge a ministry. Things that the ministry does not engage in. He repeats this over and over because he says the ministry is not this, it is not that, it is not this. And he repeats the word not, not, not over again. Not to be redundant, but because he means what he's saying. A true biblical ministry cannot consist of certain things. We have to be ready to reject and to deny certain things as much as we're ready to affirm good things. We have to be ready to reject unbiblical practices, of course. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, please, because there Paul really gives us the pattern of his ministry in terms of this sincerity. And again, it re, it, it can, it's consisting not only of the things he affirms, but also the fact that he denunciates fraudulent methods of preaching. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced, you see that? The hidden things or the hidden, uh, 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 the things hidden because of shame. That's the NASB getting really technical with the word order in the green. Kind of wooden, but that's what it says. The, the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God. See, when you don't have pure motives in the ministry, what it amounts to is an adulteration of the Word of God. You're prostituting the Word of God. You're selling the Word of God. You're using the Word of God as a means of personal gain. But by the manifestation of the truth, he says, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 3. I just... As I was putting this sermon together, it's just all these texts that I wanted to expose the church to before I was done. I was looking over my sermon going, I'm just going to get up there and be reading verse after verse after verse. I'm sorry, i got to get these out because i got to get them to you. Because you need to go to these critical crux passages. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 3. The gospel is given to us ministers to protect, to keep, to guard, to defend from error. And from those who propagate error in the church, either through their doctrine or their living, 
Because those things always go together. Look at what he says in verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, you see that? And does not agree with sound words. How many pastors do you know that are consumed with doctrine and sound words? You know what my experience is in when I meet pastors out in the street, you know, just wherever, usually because Trish gets me in some conversation somewhere, is they like to set that stuff aside. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I get all of that, but how big is your church? <laughs> I kid you not. That's how it is. You know what I mean? And it's like, no, 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 no. What we, we need to be prioritizing here above everything is the teaching, the doctrine. He says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine and doesn't agree with the sound words, see that word sound words? That word sound literally means healthy. Um, the reason why this is so important is because it's healthy in the church. If it doesn't have good doctrine, it will be spiritually anemic, malnourished. Those of our Lord Jesus Christ with a doctrine conforming to godliness. And so that's how, that's another proof that's in the pudding. If the doctrine is not producing real, actual godliness, it is not sound. It is not healthy. He is conceited and understands nothing. But he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy and strife and abusive speech and evil suspicions. Now, look down at verse 20, same chapter, verse 20, just to, just to get us to think about um, the precious character of the content of Paul's exhortation. He says, O oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Protect it from error, from impurity. Protect it from deceit. Guard that which has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. There has to be, in the preaching, there has to be this level of virtue. You know what? The Apostle Paul deals with something next in verse 4 that really gets down deep into the foundation of the pastor's ministry. And what we can call preaching with authenticity. I say that because there's three things that are mentioned here that are really important. The first thing is this. That in order to have this authenticity, you have to have an authentic calling. Authentic calling. Look at what he says here. He says in verse 4, he says, But just as we have been approved by God to do what? To be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. And so Paul is saying, first, what we need to settle is, is there an authentic calling of God? And what does it look like? Because Paul's, Paul's life was an authentic calling. Of course, we know the Apostle Paul, having been interrupted by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, you know, was, he was brought gloriously into the ministry. He was, he was approved by God, and he was entrusted by God with the unfathomable riches of Christ. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10.18, he says, it is, not he, it is not he who is com uh, commends himself that is approved, he says, but he whom the Lord commends. So in other words, the first phrase when he says approved by God, this phrase really uh, gets to the issue of God's sort of passing approval, scrutinizing something, and passing approval on it. 
But when he says entrusted by God, it also reveals here the level of value that is placed on the gospel. That's what the minister is doing. He is ministering the wealth, the riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is the most valuable commodity in the world. And the minister has the duty of dispensing this. You imagine the pressure. (laughs) If you can't, come and talk to me about it. I'll tell you. It's a lot of pressure knowing that you are handling the very Word of God. And, And therefore, because we're handling the very Word of God, it heightens the level of qualification. You know, if you own a small business and you have a bank deposit to make, you might just give it to one of your employees and say, hey, go down to the bank and deposit this slip, right? You ever done that? I've done that. But if you work for a major corporation where massive amounts of wealth need to be transferred, you hire an armed guard with an armored vehicle because you're not just going to hand that briefcase to any, you know, Joe in the business, right? You want that merchandised You want that transported and you want it taken care of and you want the most highly qualified person that you can get to transfer that valuable commodity. And the gospel is like that. And this is kind of a, I was, I was, I was, you know, meditating on this. I was thinking, boy, maybe I shouldn't be handling this (laughs) because the, the calling is so high. And then I was reminded of Paul's words in first or second Corinthians chapter three when he says, not that the adequacy is from ourselves. We are inadequate in ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God. And so this is a ministry of grace, from grace, for grace. It is all of grace, or we don't get off the ground. Therefore, we have to know that we are authentically called by God. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, the pastoral epistles. I want to draw your attention to something really obvious but really important. And that is the qualifications of a pastor. But I want to focus on verse 1 because he says, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. Now, Ask Pastor Lynn, he'll tell you about this, and I can, but I can you know, testify myself. But every person that I've ever known that has come into the ministry has wrestled with this issue right here. The whole issue of aspiring to be in the ministry. And there's wrestling back and forth, and usually there's a great, great deal of sort of introspection and to the point where you're just so unworthy, you can't even imagine that you would be qualified to do this work. But yet, at the same time, there's an undeniable zeal and a hunger and a desire that's there that just won't shut up. It just keeps banging away and just, you know, you, you just got that zeal and it won't go away. And so you're there and you're wondering, and what I'm convinced is that at some point, the called, authentically called minister, pastor, must at some point resolve that he does in fact desire the work. You have to draw a line in the sand to say, yes, I'm willing to do this with all my inadequacies, with all the deficiencies in my gifts, with all the, all the stuff that I can heap upon myself and remind myself why I'm just so unworthy of this. At the end of the day, yes, I will do it. There has to be that resolve. That's part of the calling as well. 
You know, the Apostle Paul, when he was brought into the ministry, he was brought into the ministry in a really unique way that may not identify with modern preachers. Remember, he had a theophany for crying out loud. Jesus appeared to him and put him in the ministry. And, matter of fact, according to Acts chapter 26, he had subsequent revelations of the Lord Jesus Christ where Christ appeared to him, it says, in in many things. Wow. So it apparently... It seems like what Paul says there in Galatians chapter 1, that he received the ministry not from man, not of man, but from a revelation of Jesus Christ. It was that Jesus directly revealed himself to the Apostle Paul. Well, I don't have that testimony. I hope you're okay with that. No theophanies to report here. But what I do have and what I, could, what I can bear witness with is that I have, and I've, I had, a, a very clear-cut undeniable desire and zeal that would not go away. Even when uh, people told me, I, I don't think you're actually ever going to be in ministry. And I remember those early days thinking, then what do I do with this desire, this passion? It doesn't go away. I mean, ask Trish. Remember when Trish and I first got married, I wasn't teaching a Bible study, nothing. And there I am, you know, right after work, working a long day. And I get home, all I want to do is just hit the commentaries. Hurry up, start typing up notes and exegeting. And, you know, I had just learned Greek, so I was, all, you know, I was probably prideful and, you know, everything else. And God, by His grace, used all of my foolishness, and He funneled my zeal. And by God's grace, here I am. It's very, very humbling, and it reminds us that above everything in the qualification or the calling of a pastor, Above everything, brothers and sisters, what is required is faithfulness. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4 with me because it's all going there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I told you that in this chapter we would be diving extensively into pastoral theology. And that's what we're doing. We're looking at all these different aspects of biblical pastoral ministry. Beginning in verse 1, he says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of a steward that one be found trustworthy or faithful. And so that is the ultimate requirement. Oh, I can testify to this so much. I would say this by extension to any aspect of ministry, of any kind of ministry, be it a pastor, be it a deacon, there's somebody that just comes and cleans the church. The greatest hallmark of the greatest virtue is faithfulness. I mean, you could have gifts. You can be dynamic. You can have, you know, intelligence. You can have theological acumen. You can have an academic pedigree. You can have all these things. But if you're not faithful, what good is it, right? And so Paul is saying here that we have to be found trustworthy, Faithful. He says, it's a very small thing that I be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I would say, even by this I am not acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. That's where the battle is ultimately won. Now, let's move quickly to the next two points. The second thing is not just authentic calling, but also authentic speech. Look at what he says there. If you jump right back to Thessalonians, he says here, we were approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, and then here comes a negation, not as men, as pleasing men, but God. And so your speech 
What I mean by authentic speech is that you have to be motivated in, in, in speaking for the right reasons. You are not speaking to be a man-pleaser. Um, you're not speaking so that you can avoid conflict. Oh, that's a temptation for many pastors in the church. There's those landmines that you want to just avoid all the time. You know, you don't want to talk about eschatology. Be careful. You don't stir nothing up. You don't want to talk about spiritual gifts. Be careful. You stir things up in the church. You don't want to, definitely don't want to do a message on modesty in the church. But if you're going to be a true minister of God, you cannot be motivated by the fear of man. And you know what? You can eat crow in front of everybody, but as long as you know that you are fearing God, you have nothing to fear. And it doesn't matter what anyone thinks of you. It doesn't matter how much people don't like you. It doesn't matter how many people leave the church. I'm not telling you, please don't leave the church. I'm not wearing that like a badge of honor. But what I'm saying is that when your priorities are straight, your speech is authentic, meaning it is sincere, meaning you don't try to please man. You don't try to avoid hard subjects just so that you can make it easy on yourself in the ministry. That is not what the ministry is about. Also, when he says for pleasing man, I think about the issue of favoritism. The minister, according to Paul, 1 Timothy 5.21 Paul tells Timothy, do nothing from partiality. Listen to that, folks. Do nothing from partiality. Ah, What that means is that you have no nepotism going on in your soul. You do not favor your family members or your friends. What that means is that you do not cater to the wealthy people in your church. What that means is that you see all that you see in front of you is sheep. And, you, and on all of those other qualifications are irrelevant as far as the dispensing of your pastoral duties are concerned. I am looking at sheep. I don't care if there's wealthy sheep, if there's family sheep, if there's friendly sheep. I have a good friend here today, Jeremy. I haven't seen him in, you know, how long, Jeremy? <laughs> Probably 17 years or something like that, Right? And if he were to my, join my church, I would treat you the same way I treat everybody else in here. <laughs> At least I would try to. You cannot show partiality to anyone. And this goes both ways. Not just that you don't show favoritism, let's say, but at the same time, you have to be ready to shepherd in the same way, to show love and affection and discipleship in the same way that you invest your time with that person as much as you're investing your time with anybody else. Anybody else. Oh, this one has cost me dearly. I can just testify to this. It's cost me dearly, uh, brothers and sisters, in the ministry from time to time where I... I, for whatever reason, maybe I was, maybe I spent too much time with my buddies in the church and not enough time with people that I just met a year ago or something like that. Um, and so Paul's words here are very, very striking to me. They're very relevant. The, the last thing is this, not just authentic speech, not just speaking in the fear of God only, but that authentic fear because look at what he says. The, 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 what will motivate you away from being a man pleaser is that you please God. Why? Because he is the one to examine 
your heart. Nobody else can examine your heart. It may appear that everything outside is right, but the inside only God can see. Man looks at the outside, God looks at the inside. God is the one who judges the heart. And His, as we've already read in 1 Corinthians 4, and His judgment is really the only one that matters. This is the most foundational motive for ministry. Let me say that again. This is the most foundational motive for all pastoral ministry whatsoever. The fear of God. If you don't fear God in ministry, if you have no fear of God, if you are not motivated by the fear of God, then you will be susceptible to everything that can, that can, that can go wrong in the ministry. To be influenced, to be pulled one way or another, to become pragmatic, to compromise in this way or in that way, to care what people are saying about you, to be overwhelmed in your own, or how about this? I know ministers... I know ministers that I regard them to be extraordinarily gifted, and you would never know, but they battle extraordinarily with condemnation. I know pastors that can preach an incredibly, just in what I would call just a, you know, a really good airtight sermon and walk down from preaching that sermon and feel completely condemned as if they preached the worst sermon in their life. And... Uh, come really close to vowing never to go up there again. And I think, wow, you know, I would have never thought that about that, that brother because it seems on the outside that everything is great. Everything is, you know, it's looking good. You know, it sounds great. I wish I could preach like that. But to know that you battle that, what will ground you is knowing that God alone judges you. You don't even judge yourself, as Paul says. Don't don't, uh, you know, don't render a final judgment on yourself either, you know. That's a temptation for, for pastors to get down from preaching and be like, that one went pretty good. <laughs> so what? What does it matter what you think? And it's like Arturo Azurdia once, he's leaving the church and somebody turned to him and said, how did you like the worship? And he said, what does it matter what I liked? <laughs> it's not for me. Right? That's not that it pleases me. The question we should be asked, how did God like the worship? How did God like the sermon? Did that sermon please God? And there is an objective way to know, and that is, did your sermon line up with Scripture? All of this means that the Apostle Paul was dominated by a desire to be pleasing to God in the ministry. Therefore, turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 as we close up here. That was his desires. Knowing that knowledge that God is the one that examines the heart made it so that for the Apostle Paul in ministry and all of life, his greatest ambition was to please his God. It's so freeing, by the way. When the only thing you care about is being pleasing to God, it frees you from the bondage of fearing man. It, fears, it frees you from the bondage of trying to impress others with how you sound or what you say or how you appear. It's very liberating. He says in verse 9, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed 
for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. He says, but what we are, he says, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest also in your conscience. See, that's the trick, isn't it? The trick is that what we are in God, and, and as far as our integrity before God, we hope that that will be made manifest to the church. And what he's saying is that we hope these things line up. We hope that what we are before God, that's what we are before the church. That what we are before the church, that's what we are before God. And if you are not that, according to Scripture, as he says here, you are ministering by way of deceit. There really could be nothing more important in the world than pastoral ministry. What does the world need? More pastors. Because what that means is more churches. And pastors that are qualified biblically are the pastors that are going to make the greatest impact in the kingdom of God. Even if you think other people are doing it better because they've made certain compromises, my advice to you would be keep doing it. Keep doing the biblical thing. It's okay if you feel like like a dinosaur because they've got all this and they've got all that. And what do you have? Well, I'm just expositing the Bible like John MacArthur. Well, I'll tell you what. Several years ago, I was at a conference and... Um, MacArthur's conference, and Al Mohler mentioned that when he first heard John MacArthur, he was expositing the Word of God in Sun Valley in California. He walked in. This was like, I don't know, 30, almost 40 years ago. And he says he walked in, and he walked into MacArthur expositing the Word of God. He goes, here I am 40 years later. I walk in, and what's MacArthur up to? He's expositing the Word of God. (laughs) Right? I'm talking MacArthur because we're going to the conference this week, but it's true. And God blessed him. God bless, I think John MacArthur was blessed by God to make him an example to us uh, of what uh, sometimes, not all the time, because it's not fair. Don't, I can't, I won't, I refuse. I did this a long time ago and I got totally condemned. I will not compare myself to John MacArthur. Thank you. I'll, I'll just look at the Apostle Paul. <laughs> because there was a season of his life where John MacArthur, uh, I think a season about 10 years, his church was doubling every two years. Every two years, 400, 800, 1,600, 20 something hundred. I mean, just doubling every two years. It's just exploding. I go to the Shepherds Conference every year. You know how many pastors are there? There's about 5,000 coming this year. Do you know what he started with? 12. He started with 12 men that came to a little pastor's, co- pastor's conference that he announced locally. And now he's got 5,000 pastors coming to his church. And the reason why, as many have pointed out, is not because he preached a series of barn burners. You know, uh, I think it was Phil Johnson that told me that people have asked him, what's your favorite MacArthur message? And he says, I don't know, because they're all the same. In other words, what he's saying is that consistency is what marked his ministry more than anything. It wasn't that he was, you know, preaching a barn burner here and there that you hold on to, you know, and that's the one. No, it's that he consistently exposited and exegeted the word of God and he fed the sheep and you see what God can do through one minister and the same thing can be said of Spurgeon and all the other great men of God that we should look up to as examples for their preaching. Amen. Let's pray. I want to pray specifically for our church. Father, Lord, first I confess, Lord, before you that 
in so many different ways, even as the, uh, the Apostle James says, we stumble in many ways. And in many ways, Lord, I stumble in many ways. There's many ways that I fail in the pastor's calling and things I could have did better, sins that I should have dealt with more severely, a heart that should have been more right with you. And yet, Lord, I thank you for your grace. And I'm humbled by the reality that it is not because of my extraordinary gifts, but it's only because of your sovereign grace that you've chosen to use me to whatever extent you will. And I pray that for anyone here today, anyone that you may be calling into pastoral ministry, that they would not be consumed with the gift, that they would not be consumed with their abilities, but that they would be consumed above everything with the fear of God and walking before you as the one who examines our hearts. And Father, would you use these sermons to purify and cleanse our church, to continue to mature our church and begin with Pastor Kaler and myself. We thank you, Lord. We know that you are faithful to your word. You're faithful to your church. We take comfort in that today. We take comfort that you are working among us and that you are doing your will. Help us to recognize it and help us to minister accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.